A warning, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered a substitute for legal advice. And if you have a question or wish to act upon the information in this podcast, we recommend you consult an attorney in your particular state. Welcome back to Talk Law 101. It is I, I'm Walter. We are going to be joined shortly by Mr. John Rinaldi, Esquire. Yes, he's an attorney. I'm an attorney. We're attorneys from New Jersey. And today we are talking about seven Supreme Court cases, all ranging from uh, trademark law to the Electoral College to robocalls to the CFPB. And yes, even abortion rights here. Yeah. So uh, sit enjoy relax or stand you could do what you want but uh enjoy the show there we go. um you want to do uspto versus booking because this is an 8-1 case oh, actually there was a there was a 9-0 case today yeah there was i was going to mention that it's like the first unanimous case i've seen in a while well, no, that we all we talked about one literally like a month or two ago. Uh, the the Bridgegate one was also a, a unanimous decision case. Mm. Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. Well, the one well, we one. never actually went over that one. Too. That's a good point. <laughs> um, but yeah, this was a uh, so yeah. There was a lot of uh, there was one uh, unanimous decision case, and then this one was eight to one. I think Breyer was just yeah, like, I'm just gonna write it. I'm just gonna write a dissent because I don't get to write anything anymore. So like. I actually agree with the court on this one. I actually think this was the right determination. For what, USPTO versus booking? Yeah. I oh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Like, so let, uh, let's do the rundown first like of this. It, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, because, okay, because not a lot of people have a handle on trademark law. So This is true. Uh, basically, trademark, I, I, it's how I tell people it, it's a consumer protection. Like, when they're talking about IP, I, I go, it's, it's a th- you know, it's meant to differentiate products in the marketplace. And uh, what you have to do is you have to file your trademark with the USPTO. It's a process. You file an application. Usually takes about nine months. And on the, you know, and there's different levels of like how your mark can be as to like how complex it is or how like the the le- the likeliness that it'll get like the strength of the mark is also how the likeliness to it getting approved. For instance, you can have a fanciful mark, right? Like something that like is just totally made up like uh what what's a good one that was like totally made up um like well my understanding was is that it was if it has like nothing to do with the product like it's like it's complete like like the example that like i got from from our our former professor uh was mm-hmm. apple was like the perfect one yeah if apple was completely uh completely made up it has nothing to do with it it's uh, and Apple had its own trademark issues as well, because there were two Apple companies. There was Apple Music, which was the Beatles Apple company, and then there was the Apple iTunes, like Apple yeah. Apple computers. And which probably used... only became an issue once Apple delved into the music industry. <laughs> well, that was the thing. It actually there were two lawsuits on it. There was a lawsuit back when they first opened up, and then they were sued by the Beatles, and they and they said, "Well, you're not dealing in music, so there's not a risk of confusion there." And then when they opened up iTunes, they got sued yeah. again by the Beatles uh, music company because, again, now they were infringing on them. And then I guess they settled it out. So, yeah, there's like four different levels it could be. Uh, the most, you know, suggestive and, fa- uh, su- suggestive and fanciful are the, the strongest marks, right? Something that is a, uh, 
uh, for instance, like Greyhound was probably like a good uh, suggestive mark. Like it makes it Greyhound bus kind of makes it sound like it's yeah, because like the Greyhounds have nothing to do with buses. They're two separate things. But when you see the Greyhound name on a bus, that is, you know that that is a brand you can trust. Well, I mean, unless you've had a bad experience on a Greyhound bus, I guess. But <laughs> but you you know what to expect. Yeah. So and then there's descriptive, which is like that's probably where it's like the middle ground right like descriptive uh uh trademarks or terms uh being used for a trademark can be approved they're like kind of i can't even think of any like major examples of that though like um well windex would probably be descriptive how would windex or do you or you think windex is you think windex is more more than isn't windex like a made-up name um like window. Well, it's sure, window, it's, but with an X. Yeah, I, but it's not. I like, guess I could. I guess that's what more. What does that like, mean? That might be more suggestive then. I would um, argue that Windex has the same problem Xerox does. Oh, which is that, kind of a separate issue. This is well that they became generic. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a separate issue. Uh, I, I don't think like because like Windex like I, if I, I think we're like, spending too much time on this, but yeah, I gave a, yeah well, but, okay. but it's fascinating though. Yeah. Like if I, in my head, like try to completely divorce myself of any of all context, I don't really know what I would think. Like I would guess it, I would assume it was some sort of window product, window but, like, cleaner. It, but it could be, I mean, but like Windex could be like a, a brand of windows. Yes. Like, I don't know. It could be a lot of things. I don't know. Like, it, it seems like I, I can't think of any like real major descriptive trademarks just because companies steer clear of them for this very reason um like they uh i, I don't know if they steer clear of them it's just though i guess the, the the most notable ones that we think of uh are probably i'm trying to think of one maybe like a google one trademark that's descriptive example because uh, but anyway, like the, the crux of this case had to do with generic marks, right? Yes. So generic marks are usually something that's synonymous with the product itself. Um, you know, trains and locomotives. Uh, you couldn't have an automobile pr- uh, manufacturer called car. Uh, you couldn't have uh, what's a what's another one maybe? Um, you know, an airplane company called flight. I mean, they allow Airbus. <laughs> Yeah, but that's a. I mean, that's kind of. Yeah, I know that 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 that's. I mean, like, what is a plane but an Airbus? So you know, and the the thing is, is generally you're not allowed to trademark just uh, generic terms. Um, was it just so? Uh, cold and creamies mark for ice cream. Is that is that a thing? I've never heard of that one. I mean, I would Coldstone be considered like descriptive? Like, uh, you know, I don't know. That like that is that's probably Cold in the Stone's descriptive. Not describing the ice cream, it's describing, well, it's describing the method. Yeah, but that that's that's descriptive though. So I, I think that could but be in that territory. I mean, again, is, descriptive you're still allowed to use. It's just like, now it's like they don't have a trade. Dude, like I don't know. That's that's hard because like it's like I, I don't know. I, I I could see that one going both ways. Yeah, but well, that's that's what descriptive is. Descriptive can go both ways, and that's why if you are using a descriptive mark, you're going to be less likely to, you know, you're not like you're less likely than the other two levels of mark to get it passed, and then you're you're still more likely than generic, which generic is, you know, like I said, it's if you're using here booking was they were thinking that like first off, generic term has to be um 
how they determine if something's generic is whether the consumer, like everything with trademark is kind of from the consumer standpoint. And it's whether the consumer believes that that term has become uh, uh, generic, right? Like if that's what they associate it with. So this was a website that does booking and it's called booking.com. And would booking.com be a generic term? Like unlike the term booking that's standing alone, the booking.com here under the, under the Supreme Court opinion was not generic because also they made a point about domain names. Only one person can own a domain name anyway. Yeah, let's, that's, I mean, that's, a, again, that's part of the reason why I think it was the right call. Is like, I, it's one of those weird things where like um, in my head, it feels right. Like I can't describe why exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, it sounds right to me because it changes the term now. Like, gener- like the generic term you added. And actually they even made a point that it's, it can. It doesn't mean that it will be uh, trademarkable, but it can be trademarkable. Yeah, like, uh, I don't know. It, 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 it yeah, it, it makes it, it makes sense to me. Like, and like I, I do agree. Like adding dot com to it, like it, it impl- like to me, what that does is that implies it's like booking on well, the internet or on a website. Like it's not in it, a particular it website. It. It's yeah, a particular website. I mean, maybe to like older people who might not understand how domain names work, but I mean, for the typical consumer nowadays, I think. I, I don't think it's a problem and it probably won't be a problem going forward as people become, you know, more internet savvy. And one of the reasons why the USPTO felt this, I thought that it should have been uh, not allowed was because they compared it to putting the, the name company uh, the word company at the end of a generic. Uh, it's not the so, same thing. well, that's our, that's the, that's what the Supreme court said is it's not the same thing, right? Like you're uh, if you added um, bus company to the, <coughs> Like the bus company. All right, I'm going to the bus company. Which well, one? Like that's why like, it creates confusion in the marketplace. When I think about it, like if you put like bus.com into a computer, it, it will bring you to a specific website. Yeah. Just Googling like bus or like bus company, like isn't going to do that. It's going to be like, what do you mean by bus company? Here's like 5,000 bus companies. Yeah. So it's yeah, like it, it will direct you to a specific place and you will then uh, come to associate that website with that company or service, which is how it's supposed to work. <laughs> and again, there's also the, the good thing is it's not a, there's not a risk of confusion here. There's not a risk of preventing other. The reason why, with the generic term is uh, A, it runs the risk of confusion. It also runs the risk of preventing competitors from using a phrase to describe their products that they should be allowed to use. Like if you are hotels.com, you should be allowed to use the word booking on your website, but you shouldn't be really using this phrase booking.com on your website because you're hotels.com. Yeah. So I, I think we, <laughs> it, it's very simple once you understand the concepts of trademark with this. Yeah. Um, like it's, it's, it's a whole lot of, a whole lot of stuff for a very simple concept realistically. Yeah. Well, I think, well, the funny thing is how many people don't understand trademark. That was one of the episodes I want to well, okay. do going into that the future. That is true. But I, I do actually think trademark's quite simple once you have the groundwork. Yeah. I, I've noticed that uh, a lot when you talk to people. Once you explain to them that basic, like, yeah, it's, 
it's intellectual property, but it's not really the same thing as copyright. You get a lot of people who go ahead and it's yeah. like they hear a trademark and they think copyright's oh, a mess. Copyright can be a pain in the ass, uh, <laughs> especially with the internet. But trademark and like, I'd argue like trademark and like like trade secret, those are pretty easy to explain concepts. Yeah. Well, also, again, once you once you get the groundwork, yeah. I'm a huge fan of trade dress. That was one of my favorite subjects because that gets into some really interesting product design issues. But, you know, that's a, that, that's a story for another day. Yeah, we have to do an IP law episode. Oh, soon. man. I'm going to have to, like, email Kettle and be like, teach me things again. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that was our intellectual property ep- uh, part of this episode. Um, the next one I have on this list is uh, Celia Law versus Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. Um, this that one was, I don't remember off the top of my head. Which one is that? This is where they struck down the uh, the CFPB structure because it was unconstitutional because it has one director who can be removed for cause, and the reason is is because it in the we with the separation of powers with the three branches, the executive is supposed to be able to appoint and fire the top official in you know in the organization, right? And yeah, they made a very good point here where there's not really any other. Uh, was it uh, there's not really another branch of government there's not another uh, there, there's not another thing like this where you have a single director for five years that can't be removed during that five-year span without cause if you're the president and you're running things and you put somebody in and they're not doing what you told them to do the idea is the president should be able to remove the head of an agency without having to go through some kind of jumps and loops and barrels to get rid of the guy. It kind of makes sense. This is a separation of powers issue. It's to make sure that like, you know, they, they did make a distinction uh, for I, the, the only time they've ever had, I got, I got a list of it right here. The, the only similar uh, like offices that had similar protections where there's four instances, right? The Comptroller of Currency, which was a one-year appointment during the Civil War, right? And then the Office of Special Counsel, the Administrator of the Social Security Administration, and the Director of Federal Housing Finance Agency. And aside from the one-year blip with the Comptroller of the Currency, each of these examples are mod- modern and contested. And I believe, who wrote this? I think this was actually, uh, what's his name? Kavanaugh wrote this. Oh. I don't know why I don't have the name of who wrote this in my notes, but <laughs> whatever, doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, One of them, you know, it it comes down to like what's what's the authority? It's like a uh, as to, you know, when when you're looking at this, uh, let me pull up the my note on it. Uh, and they focus on Article Two of the Constitution, and actually, there's two cases here that focus on Article Two of the Constitution. And here, Article 2 vests the entire executive power in the president alone, uh, but the Constitution presumes that the, the lesser executive offices will assist the president in discharging his duties. So basically, like, it's the separation of powers argument. There's three branches, and the, the president's power to generally do this is, includes the power to supervise and, if necessary, remove those who are aiding him. Um, and it's been recognized in multiple cases. This is not a new concept. Uh, uh, it was conf- uh, in the first Congress in 1789. They, they can confirm this when the court in Myers versus U.S. They reiterated it in Free Enterprise Fund versus Public Company Accounting Oversight. 
And in uh, Free Enterprise Fund, the court recognized that it was previously upheld that certain congressional limits on presidential removal power, but the court declined to extend those limits to a new, a, a new situation that hasn't come over the court yet. So again, a lot of it's, uh, you know, the, and they also left in place only two exceptions to the president's unrestricted removal power. First, uh, in Humphrey's executor, they permitted Congress to, uh, to give a four-cause removal for protection to multi-member bodies of experts who are balanced along partisan lines, appointed to staggered terms, performed only quasi-legislative and quasi-judicial functions, and were said not to exercise any executive power. And that was Humphrey. And then in, a, in the Morrison case, they approved four-cause removal protection for inferior officers. For instance, like uh, an independent counsel who had no policymaking authority. So, for instance, you can have a, uh, you can put somebody in the federal government, like who's not the top end of the federal government. So, for instance, say you have an accountant who works for uh, the CFPB, you can give them tenure. You could say that they're not removable without cause, but you can't do it to the top of the agency. Because they, they don't, like an accountant who works for the CFPB or the FBI doesn't have the power to create and, and change policy. Common law flashbacks. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of, I agreed with this. I didn't think this was that shocking. The important thing about this, I think from a political standpoint, from an outside perspective, not involving the CFPB, is actually with the, the healthcare law, Right because here they struck down the structure, but they kept the rest of the, the statute. They kept the rest of the, the program. So it just means that they have to change the structure and allow the president to be able to remove whoever's the head of the organization. Yeah, it seems like it's a pretty dry procedural issue that will get ironed out. It's not like it sounds. I mean, it, it is consequential, but less so. Yeah, well, I think the next case we'll do uh, will be something more in your wheelhouse. Let's talk about June Medical Services versus Russo. Ah, uh, yes, the big one. Where yeah, I felt like we would have to get to they, this eventually, that's, right? That's the big one. They they told they just gave they handed Trump a big old L. <laughs> I, and this is your area of expertise. You you I did your. I, I don't know that I would call women's reproductive health my area of expertise. Um, but it's just, I don't know. We spent a good amount of time last time talking about it. This is true. I have, I have an unusual amount of knowledge about this. Uh, although, do do feel free to correct me if I if I miss a detail because uh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what this case was about was uh, the state of Louisiana, and I believe Texas Texas had done the same thing, and it was I think was it a related case? I, I'm pretty sure Texas had the same law. Um, that said that abortion clinics in the state needed the, the provider to have admitting privileges in a, in a local hospital, and admitting privileges are, uh, if something were to go wrong, they wanted them to be able to send them to a hospital for care. Um, and the state lawmakers were trying to dress this up as saying, oh, we just care about women's health, we don't want anything bad to happen. Uh, but for those of you who may or may not know, uh, most pregnancy termination procedures are non-invasive and uh, for the most part involve taking a pill. <laughs> it's really about it. Um, there's really uh, the, the, the risk of, of any sort of emergency that would uh, require you to go to a hospital are slim to none. It is, it is an outpatient procedure for a reason. Uh, so long story short, 
they challenged this law saying that it was an undue burden on um on uh, abortion rights as uh, established under under Casey and well I should say I shouldn't this is a, this is a little bit messy really it was an attack on Roe v Wade but it was undue burden under Casey that's a whole separate mm-hmm. thing but those are the two cases to keep in mind you really don't need to know that part uh, but <laughs> just just keep keep those two cases in mind for the future um, and the court decided it was a five four right it was yeah that, that had that had to be it was five. a five four four joined in the opinion yes. Roberts joined only in judgment only not he wrote his own opinion about jurisprudence and not overturning did. long precedent <laughs> yeah because this um, is clear which is weird because we're gonna talk about another case later that kind of slaps in the face of all that but we'll but but it was a five four decision essentially a striking down the law in Louisiana and I believe by extension also Texas and Basically, what it means is that they're going to have to try to come up with a new roundabout way to stop abortion. So uh, best of luck to them, I suppose. <laughs> I think you hit the ball out of the park on that one. I tried to keep it succinct. Like I could have very well gone into some crazy detail, but I don't think they need to know all that. <laughs> uh, I am very happy. It, I, I'm happy with the way it came out. I, I think this is the right call. Uh, I think it shows you how fragile the situation is going forward, though, because now you're basically relying on Roberts to make the right call, because who are the I other mean, four justices on this but, opinion? But, but, but we knew that was going to happen from the beginning. We all knew this was going to be a 5-4 decision either way, and Roberts was going to be the deciding vote. I, yeah, I, I, I any, Anyone who thought differently is deluding themselves. Well, um, tell that to the, the senator from Maine. Well, I mean, well, I mean, it's true that Roberts was a deciding vote. He just didn't decide in the way he wanted him to. <laughs> well, no, I'm talking about um, what's it called? The the, the people who who confirmed Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, and they made it a big deal that they were going to go see, ahead and see, uphold see, but, but abortion rights. Here's, here's like, the thing: I think you can pull a fast one on this because this isn't this isn't overturning Roe. It's not the same thing. This is this is deciding what is and is not an undue burden. Those are not the same thing. Now, mm. I, I, I agree with the decision. I do believe that that the decision was correct. But I see how you can weasel your way in there. And I mean, if if this wasn't an ingenious way to try to restrict abortion rights, the states wouldn't have come up with it. I <laughs> I very well could have seen this going either way. Uh, I'm, I'm glad it went the way it did. <laughs> well, again, and I know I'm a broken record on this, but my opinion on this once again is. Roberts looked at this. He looked at how he's going to be remembered in 20 years and probably didn't want his name on rolling back abortion rights. He probably. Yeah, he, he doesn't want to be remembered for negative precedent. Wait, wait, Nobody I know, wants again, that on again I know I'm a broken record on this. I've said it like in every episode where the Supreme Court's come up. But Roberts, to me, is a man who is concerned with his legacy and he's not going to let this happen. I'm very convinced that is the case. Because it's the only thing that makes sense. And frankly, if I were him, I'd be in the exact same boat. Because, you know, 20, 30 years from now, I don't want people to remember the Roberts Court as the one who opened the door for Roe to be overturned. That history would probably not remember him too favorably. It would not, no. Um, like, like we were saying before, that creates a negative precedent, and then everything that your court did kind of gets yeah, that weird... Yeah, because we and I'm sure, as you know, generally speaking, we remember courts by their chief justice mm. at, at the time, which is why Alito don't. And I will say, Alito is such a salty person right now. He's basically complaining that Roberts won't do what he wants. I'm like, well, fuck you, Roberts is the chief. <laughs> you don't get to tell him what to do. 
Yeah. Um, Alito's a salty bitch. That's what he, is, he is very angry. I like you. <laughs> well, he gets a little bit of he gets a little bit of uh, goodness coming forward to him. Like he gets a little bit of what he wants in one of the next couple of cases. Yeah, but 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 let's be real though. This was the prize. Oh, this yeah. was the big one. And like, yeah, sure, he got a consolation prize, but like, he doesn't care about. He, this was the big one. This was the real. I, I mean, sure, the, the the LGBT rights case. I forget the name. Um, that was a big one too. Oh, Bostock. Yeah, but this was the real big one. Yeah. This this was the prize. Like, I'm willing to bet that 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 conservatives would would have given Robert to pass on Bostock if they had given him this one. Or given them this one, but he did. Well, that's not. what people I think were afraid of was that. And, that and was I was what, thinking the same thing too. I'm like, oh, he's gonna he's gonna give us a he's gonna gonna give us something. He's gonna take it away with the other hand. Uh, but no, he did not. He he really does not want civil rights to be repealed on his watch. <laughs> so let's go into the next case. Um, because I don't, I don't really have much to contribute there. There, it, it does kind of give you an idea of uh, how fragile the court is on this, on those issues. Um, but beyond that, I think the next case I have is USA for International Development versus Alliance for Open Society International. This was the case that had to do with HIV/AIDS funding and uh, having policies opposing and uh, requiring uh, policies opposing prostitution and sex trafficking, and. And the, basically, the court here held that uh, a law requiring organizations accepting funds for HIV/AIDS funding uh, to have policies opposing prostitution and sex trafficking is, does not violate the First Amendment. This is kind of this is actually kind of already established law. This was another one that I think was actually yeah, like I, I was this like, another unanimous one? I don't remember, but I do know vaguely. I feel like we covered a case like this in law school once. Something about that. Well, yeah, it's know. actually uh, the they mention it's uh, Bomadine versus Bush, and as a matter of constitutional law, foreign citizens outside the U.S. do not possess the same rights as under the U.S. Constitution. Um, basically, here the if the government's giving money away to other countries, right, or other aid companies outside of the country, they can tie as many restrictions as they want to the money. They they can say and with Bush it was abortion and funding, and here it's it's sex trafficking and prostitution and AIDS funding. Uh, the the district court held that the government was prohibited from enforcing the requirement against foreign affiliates, and the Second Circuit affirmed. Um, but this uh, basically the court here held that because foreign affiliates possess no first amendment rights applying policy requirements to them is unconst is not unconstitutional now, and if who was in favor of sex trafficking i don't think it's about who's in favor of sex trafficking <laughs> i mean it does beg the question <laughs> well maybe it was maybe they're pro prostitution i mean that's i think that's probably the real issue but just like wait a minute why is this an issue <laughs> yeah so uh I think that's what the issue was. I think they, you know, it's requiring a stance on something. It's, uh, you know, it's not being the least restrictive with the means of regulating free speech. The only problem here is that they actually, these people aren't guaranteed this money. They're not American citizens. It's foreign aid affiliates. 
Um, and again, in Bush, in Bormadine versus Bush, it was kind of a similar concept as, as far as, this is almost the exact same case. That's why I wasn't shocked it came out the way it was. I, I really want to, I, I think this was also a, a 9-0 decision because I, it might not have Sounds been. like it would have been because like it's just a very sound pre-established principle. Like I really don't know how you'd justify going the other way on this one. Oh, it was only 5-3. Oh, really? Wait, wait who, who didn't vote? Um... Justice Thomas filed a concurrent. Oh, um, Kagan took no part. Oh, okay. So Breyer filed a dissenting opinion in which Ginsburg and Sotomayor joined. So I was a little shocked that this game was so close, but... Whatever. Uh, all right. I thought that was I thought that was because uh, that's kind of established laws. If you're you're fund you're giving out funding, as far as you can tie whatever you want to it. Yeah, like you don't countries. you don't have like if you want to have prostitution, you don't have to take the money. Well, it's about policies opposing it. Like that's and again, well, well, yeah, it's too, yeah, 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 yeah. It, and again, it's it's not to organizations in the U.S. So there would probably be there's more restrictions to that here. It's they're using it as a policy swaying tool, right? To try to go to other countries and say, See, listen, like, you want this like, money for HIV? But we do that to like we do that within the country and it's fine. Like that's the reason why the drinking age is 21. Cause it's all tied to highway funding. Yeah. So like, I can't imagine how you turn around and say, we can do it to the States for drinking age, but we can't do it to other countries for prostitution. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, maybe I need to read the opinion and see, see what these justices were going on about. Cause like, I, I don't quite see how they could make the case. Unless they also believe that tying highway funding. Yeah, I didn't read the dissents also. in this. Some of them I do and some of them I don't. That one I did not read the dissent. Um, I did read the dissent in the next case, though. Oh, okay. And this is Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue. And uh, this was uh, the Montana legislature established a program that grants tax credits to those who donate to organizations that award scholarships for private school tuition uh to reckon there was a uh they wanted to be able to do it to schools that also happen to be religious schools uh so to reconcile the program with the provision of the montana constitution that bars government aid to any school that controlled that is controlled in any whole or any part by any church sector or denomination the uh department of revenue basically uh uh, basically, which prohibits families from using scholarships. At, so basically, they had a, they already had a provision in there that pro- prohibited families from using the scholarships at religious schools. Um, but so these three mothers went ahead and sued, and they said they were blocked by Rule One from using this to using scholarship funds for their st- children's tuition at Stillwater Christian School, alleging the rule discriminated against them on the basis of religious views and the religious natures of the schools that they had chosen. Basically, it's a like a voucher program. And uh, the trial court enjoined Rule 1, reversing it. And then the Montana Supreme Court held the program was unmodified by Rule 1, uh, aided religious schools in the violation of the Montana Constitution. Montana Constitution has a no-aid provision to religious schools, and the court further held that the violation required invalidating the entire program. So... Basically, this program was dead. They appealed it, made it all the way up to the Supreme Court, 
And basically what happened here was that the Supreme Court said that Montana's constitutional uh, no-aid provision to a state program providing tuition assistance to... Uh, it's a, basically, the, the no-aid provision to religious institutions or uh, religious-run institutions was unconstitutional. Uh, and they said that it prohibited... Uh, the, the provision to a state program providing tuition assistance to parents who send their children to private schools discriminated against the religious schools and the families who exercise, uh, whose children attend them or hope to attend them in violation of the free exercise clause. Mm -hmm. So basically they're saying that the, the no aid provision in the, in the Montana constitution was unconstitutional. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. So what, what they're saying here is this. So there's actually another case that they refer to. And it's funny because Sotomayor wrote the, the dissent that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the prior case to this was Trinity Luther, which was only decided about three years ago in 2017. And in that, the Supreme Court held that uh, a Missouri program that denied a grant to religious schools for playground resurfacing while providing grants to similarly situated non-religious schools violated the freedom of religion guaranteed by the free exercise clause what happened there was is that it was um and, and they held that missouri's policy violated the rights of trinity luther under the free exercise clause by denying the church an otherwise available public benefit on account of its religious status right so trinity luther's basically saying they had this you know make your you know like a park tire program, like the old chopped up tires that they, you know, they used to pave the, the parks. Mm -hmm. They, uh, they had a program for that. It was a grant, uh, a little, uh, school wanted to put in their playground. They applied for the grant. They got denied because they were a religious school. The thing was that the school did not have any, it, while it had maybe like a program in there about religion, overall, the school itself was not very religious. It was just, it was just associated. It wasn't like they were, like tied to the Catholic church. And they said that this was a, the, the fact that this grant program, right, which was a generally applicable grant program that anybody can apply to that was at any school, that it was unconstitutional that they, that they barred schools that had a religious association. And they said that was in violation of the free exercise clause. So that was the first time that that was ever decided that way. Uh, and in fact, that's what, that's what Sotomayor said in that case. And then here they, they try to look at Luther and they say, well, this is the same thing as that, right? That this is, uh, here they are denying these grants on the basis of the free exercise clause. And it actually the, it's not even that they're denying the grants. That's not, the, the problem is, is that the Supreme Court didn't throw out the program. They threw out the, they threw out the clause in the Montana constitution that said, you're not allowed to give aid to religious schools, even if you're giving aid to schools like privately funded schools. And they're saying that that violates the, the free exercise clause of the constitution. This was a lot, I'll tell you this much, the court went differently here as far as how it split than Trinity Luther. Trinity Luther was an 8-2 case, right? 8-2, mm. uh, was it, maybe it was 7-2? I don't remember. <laughs> that was three years ago. <laughs> I don't know why I have 8-2. It shouldn't be 8-2. It should either be 7-2. It's probably 7-2. It was a 7-2 case. Um, and Sotomayor wrote the dissent on that. And then she wrote the dissent here as well. I mean, 
I've, I've heard a lot about this case. Like people are saying it's the end of the separation of church and state. And like, I think that's a little overblown. I don't really think that's what's happening here. Well, I think people who were, who were glancing at the case when they were looking at it, they were saying, oh, so now they're going to require anybody who has a, tu- like a tuition program that funds schools to fund the, the religious schools as well as the non-religious schools, which actually might be kind of closer to Trinity Luther. Here what they're saying is that the Montana clause of no aid to to religious schools was the violation because that is discriminating against religion. And I think that's kind of stupid because it, it, you're, there's a balancing here of the free exercise clause and the establishment clause. Yeah, like that's, that's what I'm grappling with in my head right now. Like, and, and the purpose of the Montana constitution, that no aid provision was in furtherance of the establishment clause. Yeah. So, and in my head, this opinion makes sense as long as Montana's not just as long as any relig- any denomination or any type of religious school can get the grant. I mean, it's not really an establishment issue then. Well, they weren't. Over- Keep in mind, they weren't overriding Montana. They weren't saying Mo- Montana Supreme Court got it wrong. What they're saying is Montana su- Constitution. This one clause in their constitution is actually unconstitutional. Well, yeah, but my, my thought is if your goal is to prevent the establishment of like, like to, if, if your goal is in furtherance of the establishment clause, as long as it's equal opportunity to all religious institutions, then like you're not really establishing anything. You're just giving money to religious schools. And like we, because because it, it, it doesn't say we're giving, you know, we will give money to Christian schools and no other religion. So. While I agree with you on that, what I think my issue here is, is that the, this is Montana saying they don't want their, they don't want to give any aid to any religious schools, right? This is what their, their, their constitution said. This is what their Supreme Court said. Mm-hmm. I think this falls under states' rights, where I mean that that's they get to decide that thing. they should be able to decide where their money is spent, and if they do not want, they believe that funding religious schools is in violation of their establishment clause or the establishment clause of the Constitution, they can have their own policy against that. So I think there's actually a states' rights issue here. I I agree with that. Like that does that is also. I mean, I would. I guess the the counter argument is well, then you could just fund no schools. Well, they by extension, you will fund no religious schools. Well, and again, what the main distinction here is that they're all private schools. Well, yeah, they're not. This isn't like public schools. These are voucher programs. Well, couldn't yeah, but couldn't Montana just get rid of their voucher program altogether? Yeah, they could. Like, fine. Well, then, fine. In theory, like, then they technically the did. We're just not going to do this then. <laughs> in theory, they technically did. And one of the things that I think Sotomayor had an issue with was, why is this case before us right now? This program does not exist under the current, uh, under that state law anymore. Like their, their, their court voided their own state law. Why is this before the Supreme Court of the United States? I guess because it's repeatable. Well, not, not even if that's another, repeatable, if, if but it's not right. Has... It's not, I think the issue here is that it's not right. It's not a, it's not a, um, there, who, who has standing to dispute this? This isn't a, this is no longer a, this is no longer a program. Oh, okay. You know, as well as I do that standing is an excuse that courts use when they don't want to do something. 
<laughs> I mean, granted, there are some very real standing issues, but if they want to hear it, they'll find a way. And if they don't want to, well, hear that was the case. That was the issue. Away. That was the issue in Luther. Uh, Luther, what's it called? The the one that we just talked about. The June Medical Services. Yeah, like, like, who, I, who had standing to make that case? I I don't take I I, I don't take standing issues very seriously. Not standing because, like, ripeness. Ripeness is a different story, though. Because the issue you is can that have it's standing not, and it not be ripe. My argument here is that it's it's a moot point. The program doesn't exist. They're saying that the the constitution of Again, my biggest problem here is that they're saying that a state constitution that is in violation of the free exercise clause, but I really don't see how it is because they're they're I, saying you just can't fund any religious schools. Yeah, I don't. They're know. saying you can fund, but they're saying you're discriminating against those schools by saying that they can't receive funding. Okay, I have a theory. The Supreme Court took it so that they could give conservatives something that's like a win that's not really a win, make them feel like they got something when they really didn't get anything. Yes, you are right about this moot issue. Done. Because I think the major difference between this and Trinity Church, uh, Trinity Luther is that was an existing program, right? They didn't get rid of the program. Trinity Luther's, uh, you know, Tire Park program was already in existence. And they were saying they were suing for the right to use it. Uh, and saying, listen, we're a school, we're just a privately funded school. We happen to be religious, but we're a privately funded school. And I, I think that I get that argument for Trinity Luther. Here, they're saying this program, which you threw out, you shouldn't have been allowed to throw out, which it's, I think, again, this falls under states' rights. This is Article 10 of the Constitution that, you know, the, the state governments are allowed to do with their money, and as long as they're not violating the Constitution, which they're saying here they are violating the Constitution. Well, like the Supreme, Court, discriminating can't, against the Supreme Court can't order them to have a voucher program if they don't fucking want one. Well, then, but they're saying that it has to be the legislature that does it then. You can't, they're saying the, the basis on which the Montana Supreme Court voided it was, That's was so unconstitutional. roundabout and stupid. Wait, so, so does that mean that if the Supreme Court decided that a federal law was unconstitutional, Congress would have to repeal it? That they can't just strike it down? No, that what they're saying is the provision that the Montana Supreme Court found this unconstitutional was unconstitutional. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So thus, this program now, now they're saying you have to reinstate this program because your Supreme Court got it wrong. But they can't make the state reinstate anything. Well, I guess essentially the, the, the program just becomes not like basically it becomes unstricken by the Supreme Court of Montana and it becomes an existing program. And then their legislature can do with it what they will. Or the Montana Supreme Court can find another reason to strike it down, which I don't think they would at this point because the, they're saying that the basis of this clause is. Yeah, not this, this, this really does just reek of states' rights issues like. Who are they to tell the Montana Supreme Court that they can't strike down a state law? Well, also, well, again, they're saying it's based off of their that their constitution's unconstitutional. Uh, I don't. I mean, which well, that's the that's the problem is that it's dumb, right? Yeah, like, like it's moot. This program doesn't exist because it was struck down. Why is this before us? Well, you guys went ahead and decided to. I, I don't know why is this before. That's what Sotomayor is kind of saying. Is so why is this before us? We, you know, and she also said that Trinity Luther was like kind of in kind of she didn't say it was decided wrong, but she hinted that it was decided wrong. She said that Trinity Luther was kind of like the first time where we kind of took the step uh, of 
this this step of going ahead and granting these like hey this kind of semi-establishment clause issue now is there any indication as what the montana legislature wants to do now that this happened like because if they don't want the program they can just be like fuck this program we don't do anything um i mean again this was it sounded like they wanted the program it was the, the supreme court of that state that struck down the program hmm. like this I mean, was a yes. montana program I don't know. It's in Montana. I don't care about the state of Montana. It's one of those states no one cares about. So those were the five that were released last week. And then there were two that were released today. I know. It's like it never ends with these people. These were kind of cool cases. Um, this was also a Kavanaugh opinion. Uh, and this had to do with... Uh, so there's the... The Telephone Consumer Protection Act of 1991, which makes it illegal for robocalls to call your cell phone. I don't know how. This illegal my ass. Yeah. <laughs> I got three of them just today. It, it is a ban, a federal ban on robocalls to cell phones. Now, what happened was in 2015, they put an amendment into the, the, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, right? And they said, you, they're still banned, except for if they are collecting government debts. And what happened was, in this opinion, the Supreme Court said, that's unconstitutional. Not that the, the, they said that the original act, the, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, is constitutional. You are, you are making certain acts illegal. But under this 2015 act, you are, it is this ban is a ban on free speech. It's a restriction on free speech, right? Because you are talking about the content of the call and you're not differentiating it. You're not saying debt collectors are allowed to make these calls or agencies on behalf of federal government's collecting debts or the federal government collecting debts are allowed to make these robocalls. They, they did not make that distinction. What it was is it said just government collection of uh, just a government debt. Uh, basically, uh, the exception for robocalls was a call to collect government debt from, and that was the one exception. And because this this ban includes, you know, the robocalls regarding like political ads, you know, like it is a massive ban. It's a ban on a lot of things, even though clearly it doesn't work. Yeah, I mean. Uh... I mean, this is a pretty this is a pretty easy case, right? It's yeah, it makes like... sense. Um, it may, well, actually, I gotta be honest. It, when kind of looking at it, I was confused and I'm like, what was the distinction here? And they're basically saying that because you're talking about the content, once you realize it's the content of the speech that they're talking about and that becomes, that falls under strict scrutiny, right? Yeah. The, the old, uh, strict scrutiny tests oh, where God. it has to be the least restrictive means for, uh, an important, uh, an important uh, government interest and because the interest here is definitely not outweighing the restrictiveness means because basically what's there is a less restrictive means of doing this you you ban all of them and you're not you're not restricting the speech anymore so yeah. you're just saying you can't do robocalls you're just banning the act you're not you're not now you're not now taking one group of speech and saying that that's more important than the rest it's kind of yeah. weird that they're banning the act, and then when they then when they made the exception, the whole reason is it's because of content. Yeah, like that's a little odd, but you know, whatever. 
I mean, I don't find it too odd. I mean, again, it's Kavanaugh who wrote the de- the, the decision, and I, it was funny because uh, some of these, what was it, Roberts' decision on the the Espinoza case was like twenty one pages. I initially thought it was a lot shorter, and then I read it, and I'm like, oh fuck. Um. Anyway, so yeah, they they said it violated the First Amendment as a restriction on free speech, and because again. It, it, you know, these, this ban also restricted such speech as political speech, issue advocacy, and there, there wasn't sufficiently enough justified to differentiate government debt collection from those kinds of speech. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So I, I agree with it. And again, they only struck down the ban, uh, the, the exception. They didn't strike I mean, down the statute. And that's the kinda... real question, though, is like, who cares? Because, like, robocalls from, like, the United States are not the problem. I don't get those. All the ones I get are people in India or people speaking Chinese over my phone. I don't even remember the last time I got well, a Well, keep in mind, that's not a robocall, then. If they're speaking... Oh, no, it is still. I mean, well, that depends oh, it is on your ro- definition of robocall. If you use the auto dialer and then a person speaks, you can do yeah. that. But then, remember, these are all overseas. So, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> Um, so like, yeah, like, sure, you can have your ban on robocalls in the United States. You also have to like, track that's them. That's not really where the problem is. The other thing is you have to track them, find yeah, them. Good luck tracking that when you can spoof a number, no problem. Yeah. I've I've gotten I've gotten robocalls from my own number before. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? How stupid do you think I am? <laughs> yes, it's me calling me about a great deal for a computer warranty. <laughs> I, I had one of these guys on the phone one time. He was trying to sell me a warranty for my computer, and I kept asking him, what type of computer do I even have? <laughs> because I can tell you right now, there is no warranty on a, on a custom-built system. There is warranty on individual parts. So he couldn't answer any of my questions. He kept saying I had like an HP. I'm like, no. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't do that. <laughs> but, but yeah, like, uh, whatever. Government debt collection, who cares? They can call me all day about it. I'll just block the damn number. <laughs> so we got one more case. It's the Faithless Electors case. We're talking this about the Electoral is, yes. College. This one is interesting. Chiafalo versus Washington. This was the 9-0 opinion today. Um, the holding here. Uh, so the question here is whether a state may force its, uh, its electors in the Electoral College to vote a certain way, do, particular. Do. Do our what? listeners even like know the, 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 the underlying structure of this issue? Like I mean, what yeah. is an elector and like what is a faithless elector? Like I feel like you have to have some knowledge of how the electoral college works to fully understand what this means. All right. So the electoral college, uh, you know, everybody everybody kind of learns the basics of it. You get a certain amount of electors uh, per state and it's based off your congressperson plus your senators. And but they're not those are not the people who are your actual electors. They're just random like electors that are appointed by your party when you vote in the election. And then they're supposed to cast a ballot on your state's behalf. I think a simple way to put it is you do not vote for the president. You vote for the person who then in turn vote for the president. Yeah. And the question is, when you vote for the person who votes for the president, if they are pledged to vote for a specific candidate, can they change their mind even though their vote was already pledged to a specific candidate? Yeah. And basically what happens here is the state, the question is whether the state can enforce it. Right. 
And yeah, under... I, I don't think it stops faithless electors. It just says you can punish them. Oh no, you can. It says that they, like it gives them as much broad power. Oh, I guess that's true. I mean, it doesn't say faithless electors are in an inherently unconstitutional. It just that the state wants to throw the book at them, so be it. Well, it says a state may enforce an elector's pledge to support the party's nominee and the, the state's voter's choice for president in the Electoral College. And they get this authority from Article 2, Section 1, which gives the state's authority to appoint electors in such a manner as the legislature thereof may direct. The, the court has described the clause as conveying the broadest power of determination over who becomes an elector. Uh, the power to appoint an elector includes the power to condition his appointment, absent some constitutional constraint. A state can require, for example, that an elector live in the state or qualify as a regular voter during a relevant time period. So the, the state can do whatever. Actually, in fact, the states didn't always do their electors like this. It was like they, they used to have different ways that their electors were even appointed. Like they were like you like back in like the, the 1700s, early 1800s, they had they had all different ways of like how those votes got tallied, who who was the electors and how that got you know, how that all went about. So uh, actually the funny thing is Kagan wrote the opinion here and she wrote a lot of contemporary references in here. <laughs> she made reference to Hamilton. Uh, of course she would. <laughs> there's something else she made reference to. Um, I forget. Uh, there was another thing in this case that she, she made, she made a couple of like very big pop culture references in this case. Good for her. <laughs> um so basically they were saying that you know the the power to you know the the state has the right to go ahead and and, and associate conditions with it and and enforce or insist the elector play, uh, cast their ballot in the electoral college for the president's nominee this actually came out of 2016 with the hillary clinton uh three of her electors didn't want to vote for her yeah i had a feeling that was I didn't know that, but I had a feeling that's what the problem was. <laughs> and it was whether, uh, you know, Washington or these other states, I think there was one other state that was also involved with it, whether they could deviate from or whether it was okay for Washington to fine them or punish them for, for deviating. Yeah. So uh, electoral college is bullshit, but this is unfortunately part of the process. I, I don't know. We, we, we had this discussion off air once, didn't we? Or like when we were not recording when like I kind of understand why it exists and I feel like it cuts both ways depending on the situation. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, again, like I think this is I thought this was longstanding law too. Like I was a little shocked that they had. And again, it came out the way that I thought it would come out. And the fact that it came out 9-0. I mean, I don't think this is inherently like, like typically you get like these decisions, like in the modern Supreme Court, you get like nine of like non-political, pretty easy questions to answer. And this yeah. seems like that was the case. Like, I don't know that there's really any politically charged part of it. And it's like, well, this has already been established. We've, we've, we've done this already. So whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, outside of that, though, I, I again, I uh, this was such an easy decision that I really don't have much to say about it. Like, it's not like there, there's another way to go about it, um, because otherwise you'd have chaos anyway. Like, all of a sudden you have electors being like, "I can't be punished. I'm just going to vote for whoever I, I mean, want." Some people envision that system working that way, though. That'd be insane. 
it that would be insane but like i i could understand how like that could work i get i don't know <laughs> Like, and again, like the, the, the Constitution pretty much says, like, listen, this is up to the states outside of the procedural elements of, uh, of uh, Article 12, which says, like, they cast a ballot at a certain time at a certain like the outside of those elements. Everything else is left up to the states. Yeah, it, this one makes sense. There's really not a lot to say about it. It's the Electoral College may or may not suck. And this is how it works. And you kind of just have to deal with it. Yeah, this wasn't one of the sexier cases. I'll admit that. I feel like the there like it, went, it was funny. Some of these cases were really fun and sexy. Some of them are a learning experience. I feel like the USPTO case is a very good learning one for people. I, I who feel are like that one's just to, interesting. Like on a, on a certain level, like I feel like June Medical was really the like I said that was really the prize. That was the big one. That was that was the biggest that one, was I think, the for the case. summer. Oh, actually, no, because there's still five more cases outstanding. What else is even out there? I don't even. I don't even know. Tax anymore. return. It's all a lot of Trump stuff. Oh, I, I don't care about those. It's a lot I mean, of Trump I do, stuff. I do, but I don't. Um, I am not shocked that there's like, I mean, I'm I'm not shocked that there's still five left. I feel like this is we've been talking about this stuff forever. <laughs> yeah, it's been an unusual season, but hey, it's been an unusual year. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you want, you can follow the podcast at punklaw101. If you want, you can follow me at brojo, death is in the end of life. Punch like a delicious drink you drink in the summer. And, uh, you know, John doesn't want you following him anywhere. So, uh, yeah, you can just follow me for any updates. And uh, TTFN, that's all for now. Like, follow, subscribe. We're all those fun little bits you got to do to keep the podcast uh, views a-going. And thank you. Thanks again. Bye-bye. <laughs>